Amen. So this morning, we are continuing our series in Mark, in Mark's gospel. And uh, we, uh, originally I had like four or five points to make about today, but I, with, with uh, our special family ceremony time, we're going we're gonna to cut that short a little bit. And I thought maybe I'll just uh, maybe reflect on two of those four or five or however many points I had or lessons that we had for today. Um, but uh, in order to do that, let's recap a little bit of this, uh, this story and where we, where we are. We're early in Mark's account of the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus has gone around in the beginning of his ministry, and he has demonstrated his authority uh, as, uh, as God. He has the authority of himself to forgive sins. He has the power and the demonstration that he is that he is from God in his working of miracles in the lives of of people. And the crowds are amazed and astonished at the work of Jesus and what he has done. His teaching about who he is. And great crowds were gathering around, but also some great opposition was starting to develop it. We saw a little of both earlier on in Mark's gospel. And here in chapter three, we start to see an increase of both of those uh, types of things. In chapter seven or chapter three, beginning in verse seven, great crowds, it says, are following Jesus. So much so that he is actually even forced to uh, get into a boat to kind of escape the pressing of the crowd. So Jesus gets into the boat because it says that they're they're crushing him. If he didn't do this, they would have been crushing him. Um, some uh, scholars would estimate that given the regions that are listed there in verses 7 and 8 and where they are geographically in the large crowds that are described, they're saying we're talking crowds in the thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people are gathering around Jesus because of the amazing works that that he is doing. We know elsewhere from the gospels that this doesn't this trend of these really large crowds doesn't keep on going forever. Uh, as a matter of fact, as Jesus gets further into his teaching and telling about who he is and what he is going to do, uh, some of the crowds, uh, the the excitement of the the good that Jesus kind of could provide for them in this earthly life wears off a little and the crowds actually get a little bit uh, smaller. But here early in his ministry, the crowds are great and are growing so much so that uh, even the unclean spirits are aware of who Jesus is. Verse 11, it says that the unclean spirits fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So interesting, all of the, the human responses to Jesus is, who is this guy? But the demons and the evil spirits know exactly who he is. And it's in the midst of this, Jesus calls in, uh, some disciples and then he equips them and empowers them to send them out. And we see that in verses 13 through, uh, through 19. But this morning, I want to focus a little bit on these last two scenes. Beginning in verses 22 through 30 is the first scene and a lesson we can uh, or more of a question that we that is typically asked about this passage and hopefully give an answer for that and then uh, a lesson that we can glean from the end of the chapter which is verses 31 through 35 
The first one is this opposition to Jesus that we see beginning in verse 22. And here we are introduced to this topic of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've often fielded lots of, quote, frequently asked questions, FAQs, about the, the Bible and some tricky passages and what do these kinds of things mean or more kind of theological questions, um, you know, like, uh, like Emmeline asked us the other day in the car. She goes, now, wait a second. If uh, God created everything, then who created God? And so we had to kind of explain uh, those kind of questions. I like those kind of questions. Um, the question perhaps I've probably gotten the most, however, is what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about here as being so, so dangerous? And I think that the question uh, usually arises um, because people, when they've read this, these words of Jesus, they have concerns. Uh, they have concerns for themselves. Have I committed this unpardonable sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Or has a loved one I know committed this uh, sin? the sin of the blasphemy of the, the Holy Spirit. And so um, it's helpful to kind of answer that question, look at a little bit of the context here of what Jesus is saying. So notice in verse 22, and it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, the scribes, these are referring to the kind of the, the religious uh, authorities, and it says they came down from Jerusalem, right? So these are the religious authorities from the religious capital. And they're hearing reports about what Jesus is doing and the healing that he is working in people's lives. Um, and this miraculous work of casting out evil spirits and demons. And they come to kind of investigate and to check and see what is going on. And they see this. And they make this uh, accusation or this charge that what Jesus is doing is actually um, blasphemous. Notice they, they say it's actually um, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Okay, now uh, they go on to, to, to kind of equate that with the prince or ruler of demons. So according to Jewish tradition, this Beelzebul is this kind of ruler over demons. And so it's a kind of another term in the Jewish tradition for, for Satan, which Jesus clearly knows that that's who they're referring to because Jesus is, alludes to Satan specifically in uh, his response. And this is a serious charge because if what the scribes are saying is true and that Jesus really is um, doing this and doing the work of Satan, then then he would be guilty of blasphemy. And if they could prove it in their religious courts, they can actually put Jesus to death for the charge of, of blasphemy. Now, what is blasphemy? This is, this is a term that's, that's used for uh, another way of saying it would be like mockery. Um, it's a term that denotes the violation of the glory or majesty of God or the power of God or even a violation of God himself. When used of other humans, it's uh, usually associated with false witness or speaking evil of somebody, ruining somebody's reputation with an evil report. But of, of God, that's, that's charging, um, that's charging uh, 
making a false accusation or false report about God himself in the theological realm. So here, based on what the, the scribes are doing here, they're making this charge of, uh, that Jesus is committing blasphemy. So it's in that context we need to understand what Jesus' response is. Notice Jesus' response, verse 23. And he called to them and said to them in parables. And he asks kind of a, a series of rhetorical questions that have the answer. How can Satan cast out Satan? Right? You're saying that what I am doing is I'm casting out demonic authorities, but the authority that I'm doing that with is, the, is, uh, is demonic. That doesn't make sense, Jesus is saying. Because that would pit the, the work of delivering somebody from the realm of Satan as the work or the activity of Satan. It's, it's kind of contradictory, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. How can Satan cast out Satan? He goes on in verse 24, again, with a similar line, line of thinking. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Basically, you would have a civil war. When you have a civil war, you can't have one unified kingdom. Or in verse 25, if a house, uh, if a house is divided against itself, that house is not able to stand. Okay, that was not Abraham Lincoln. That was actually Jesus. Abraham Lincoln is quoting Jesus here. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus is refuting their accusation here, saying it doesn't make sense for me to do uh, the work um, for me to, if I am possessed by a demon, to undo the work uh, that demons do. And the, the implication here is I'm, I'm not doing Satan's work. I'm doing God's work. And this the scribes seriously have messed, mixed up. And then Jesus now in, in verse 23, it says that um, Mark says that Jesus is speaking in parables. I think the parable really kind of starts in verse 27. Notice verse 27. There's this, this parable here. Uh, and in this case, it's kind of an, an allegorical parable. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. We got the picture here that if you're going to plunder a strong man's house, you obviously have to take care of the strong man first. And here, I think this is the, the allegory here, is that the strong man here represents Satan. The one who is doing the binding of the strong man here uh, is Jesus. And the plundering of the strong man's house is the rescuing of those who are part of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of this air. That's what Satan's realm is described of, the kingdom of this world. He's the ruler of the, the spirits of the air. And so Jesus is saying here that um, in order for us to plunder God, Satan's house and the realm that he's in to deliver people from those things, you have to bind the strong man, which is Satan himself. And Jesus is saying, that's that's what I'm doing. That's the work I'm doing here. And so Jesus is delivering them from uh, this this bondage. So now it's in that context. You got the, the picture here 
Now it's in that context that Jesus is saying these words. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And it gives, Mark gives the reason why. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what he, Jesus is saying here is they are actually taking the work of God, the work that God is doing, and it, taking it away from God's work and is attributing it to demonic forces so as to undermine God's work. And Jesus says uh, that is where these scribes are in error. How does that apply uh, to us? Jesus says this is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. He says all all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. This one will not be forgiven. Why? Well, when you think of the role of the Holy Spirit brings conviction of our sins and our need for a Savior. Convicts us according to sin and righteousness and judgment. If you take that convicting power of the Holy Spirit and reject it, dismiss it out of hand and say, that is not from God. I don't have anything to do with that. Then you have cut yourself off from the only thing that does save you. The only way you can be forgiven. It's interesting. Paul goes on in his letters to to speak about his life before he became a Christian. He was uttering blasphemies against Christ and against Christ's followers. And when the Lord finally gripped his heart and caused him to repent of his sin and rejecting of of God and drew him to Christ, he spoke of his past life as I was a blasphemer. I thought I was on God's side in this whole thing by trying to squash the good news about Jesus. And in reality, what I was doing was blasphemy. He was he was blaspheming God. But he goes on to say, but I was forgiven. Even though I was the chief of sinners that Christ forgave me when I just repented of my sin and turned to him. And that's true for us. If you're concerned about having committed this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The solution would be to receive what the Spirit does. To bring conviction of your sin. To repent and to humble yourselves. And to turn to Christ. So that was the issue here with the the topic of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly... Kind of the last lesson that we have for this morning is um, is this. Jesus knows what it is like for you to be at odds with your family. Jesus knows what it is like for you to be at odds with your family. Verse 31 through 35, Jesus kind of explains as the family is coming to him. But that's not the first time we're introduced to the family. This scene about the um, scribes coming with the accusation of blasphemy of Jesus and um, casting out demons by the prince of demons. We have a a sandwich that's kind of sandwiched into these two descriptions of family. Notice what happens in verses 20 and 21. 
It says, then he, that's Jesus, went home. The crowds gathered around him. This is presumably in Capernaum where he was staying near Simon Peter's house. Uh, and it was gathering, the crowds were gathering so much that they could not even eat. And then notice verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, his family here, we know, is refers to his mother and his brothers and perhaps even his sisters. Some texts have brothers and sisters. And this is referring to the biological children of Joseph and Mary. Right. So all of uh, Jesus's younger brothers and sisters, uh, uh, earthly speaking. So they kind of see this ministry that Jesus is is doing and what he is claiming about himself and the authority that he has as the son of God and the son of man. And the crowds are gathering around him. The, the religious leaders keep trying to make accusations against him and he's refuting them and actually saying of the two of us, you're the one who's committing blasphemy. This kind of raises some eyebrows with Jesus' family. They actually think he is uh, a little bit crazy. They say in verse 21, he is out of his mind. And so because of that, they are trying to go and seize him. This term is used elsewhere for like uh, grabbing and arresting or dragging somebody off like to prison. They were trying to go and drag a Jesus out from among these crowds because his claims are so outrageous. And so Jesus knows uh, exactly what it's like for you to be at odds with your family when it comes to your commitment to Christ. So a question I have for all of us today, it, does your faith in Christ cause lo your loved ones to be suspicious of you? Or has that ever happened to you in your past? I remember my first, um, and you, many of you know this story and have heard me speak about how I uh, grew up in a Christian home, but the Lord converted me and uh, made me born again back in 1990, my first year of college. And um, it was the Lord worked really just powerfully in my life and kind of made a 180 for me. And, and in a matter of weeks, I ended up transferring from a state university and went to a, a Christian school uh, that year as kind of just a new baby Christian and took Bible classes and went, chap went to chapel three times a week. And uh, the Lord really grew me and I was excited to come back from Illinois back to California and share all with my family and was pretty, as Rosie said, pretty zealous in those kinds of things. And, um, and that, um, that zealousness, uh, that zeal was, was kind of met with a great deal of suspicion. Who is this crazy Jesus freak guy? And I was at odds with my family. Many of my family members, even though they kind of grew up in church, uh, but their commitment level to Christ was was pretty low. And it uh, put some strain on those relationships. I imagine some of you have kind of experienced a very similar thing. Some of you probably have come from um, 
maybe a, more of a Catholic background, a more ritualistic kind of background in your faith and commitment to Christ and your devotion to following him, maybe at odds with your uh, family's upbringing. Some of you may uh, have friends and relatives who kind of the generic evangelical kind of world, or maybe some from like the prosperity gospel and are influenced by that. And your faith to Christ and your commitment to his word uh, causes some, some tension. Or maybe you come from just a, a straight atheistic or unbelieving background. And you've got people in your family who think your new, your commitment to Christ is just flat out irrational, right? Can you all relate to, to some, some portion of that? To all of them, what's consistent through all of them is that your faith in Christ might seem, might seem really weird to them. And just know, Jesus knows exactly what that is like because Jesus himself was weird to his own relatives. And Jesus told us that we would experience this, that we would be at odds with our family. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but you, you could just listen to these words. Jesus says, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Your discipleship, your faithful discipleship to Jesus will put you at odds with your family. Now, this does not mean that you abandon them. He's not talking about what your response is to your family. He's talking about what you can expect your family's response will be to you. We are obligated to serve our family. We are obligated in the scriptures to, to provide for our relatives, to um, rule over our house as well. We are, we're called to do those things. Jesus isn't talking about your, what you should, your response to be. He's talking about the response you should ex expect. And so your faithfulness to Christ will cause you to be at odds with your family. But here's, here's the, uh, um, the beautiful point that's helpful here. Even though your faithfulness to Jesus will, will make some of your family to pull away from you or be at odds with your family. Don't worry. Jesus gives you a new family. He brings you into the family of God. Notice verses 31 through 35. As Jesus is... Presumably in the home and all the crowds are pro prohibiting people from coming in. It says in verse 31, and his mother and his brothers, and like I said, some texts have sisters. His mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him, presumably to do what they said in verse 21, to go and seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to them, said to him, 
Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus takes those who do the will of God, and as we know, this is, involves believing the one whom God has sent, that is, believing in Christ. Jesus says, whoever does that, he is, or she is, my brother and sister and mother. Jesus gives us a, a new family. He puts us into a new family through faith in him. What a wonderful promise here. Some of us read this and we take the, the initial response is uh, how offensive that is to what Jesus' words it would have been in the ears of his family. And there is that. Often when Jesus is teaching and making it a point, uh, his words are, are harsh and they come across as critical. But Jesus is establishing the truth that he has said elsewhere. That priority, faith in me takes priority and precedence even over blood relations. For that blood is thicker than water. Jesus assures us that the spirit is stronger than blood. That he puts us into a new family. That we are adopted by Christ. Through faith in Christ, um, God has made us his children. The terms that are used of Christians for one another is brother and sister. You thought that that was just a weird quirk that I do, and I, I, I've called you a brother or sister. Um, there's actually kind of a, a deeper meaning to that, because what, what being in relationship with Christ means is that he brings you into a family. And that's what we are, is a family. It's one of the biblical metaphors for the church, is family. So... The words that Jesus gives us here reminds us through his own experience that we will experience times at being at odds with our family. The encouragement is stay strong with Jesus. Stay strong with Jesus. One, he will probably use you to reach your family, which is what he eventually did with, with my family. I had the opportunity, and it took many years and some very difficult and awkward kind of conversations like Rosie was alluding to earlier. Um, but the Lord used that to, to reach my family. But he only did that because I put Christ ahead of my family. So I encourage you to stay strong with Jesus and put him ahead of your family. And then he will use you, hopefully, to reach your family, but to remember to remind yourself in the meantime that you are a part of a spiritual family through faith in Christ. And you not only are you forgiven of your sins and brought um, into his kingdom forever. In the meantime, he puts us into a spiritual family here on earth. Doesn't leave you orphaned. But brings you in. Amen. So let's let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you of this truth that even though we may be uh, at odds with our earthly families because of our commitment to Christ, 
God, we pray, um, thanking you for the word that you give us to encourage us and remind us that you've brought us into uh, your family. God, we pray that uh, in the various ways where we have, um, and I believe that uh, not a family is, uh, not a person in here is not a, uh, doesn't have some family relations um, that, uh, that doesn't have some sort of tense um, difficulties when it comes to spiritual things and to, when it comes to the gospel. God, we, we all have various ministries, even under our own roofs or with our own uh, kin and relatives. God, we pray that you would use our, our trust in Christ to reach the family members who need to know him. And God, we, um, we thank you that you have brought us into a community and a family. That when we have trust in Christ, that you... You make us into a community where we can experience encouragement and exhortation. God, thank you that you put us into the spiritual family uh, of our various various churches. So, God, we pray that we are encouraged by this word, encourage us with the truth of these words uh, this week. As we go from here... We ask that you would bless our various walks and in, in, in our journeys and that you would use us to help share the good news about Christ with others. And this we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, I invite you to, to stand for closing benediction. And if you have any questions or, you know, uh, have any items that you would like prayer for, or you have questions about um, the Bible or this gospel or Jesus, um, feel free to come and speak to me afterward. I'd love to, to talk with you. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.